You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I am Mike Hume, editor of video game coverage for the Washington Post. Today I'm joined by Reggie fils the former president and COO of Nintendo of America, to discuss his journey from the Bronx to the top of the video game industry. Reggie, welcome to Washington Post Live. Mike, thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure, Reggie. So let's get right into it, shall we? You recently published a book titled Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo. Can we start by just talking about your upbringing in the Bronx and your journey to the video game industry? Sure. You know, so my upbringing was typical, if you will, of a lower income kid from immigrant parents. My parents emigrated from Haiti in the 1950s. They came to the United States to escape the brutal dictatorship of Francois Duvalier. We lived in a five for tenement building uh, that was in a rough neighborhood. And so for me, early in my life, it was learning key principles about grit, about tenacity. Uh, I was lucky enough to be uh, you know, skilled at academics, and it was through academics that I was able to bootstrap myself up, uh, attend Cornell University on scholarship, and really, that set my path forward to be an executive across a range of different business inter- industries, everything from consumer packaged goods to the restaurant industry, and found myself as the executive vice president of sales and marketing at Nintendo in 2003. And back then, Nintendo was in a really difficult position. Uh, Microsoft had entered the video game industry just uh, a few years prior. Sony was the dominant player. And so for me, it was an opportunity to step in, apply all of my 20 plus years of marketing and executive leadership experience to help this venerable company uh, be successful. And luckily, I was able to do that. Now, you joined Nintendo, a Japanese company. Was there much of a cultural adaptation and how did you manage to navigate that? You know, there always is a cultural adaptation when you're joining a new company. And certainly, you know, I would describe Nintendo as not a traditional Japanese company. They're headquartered in Kyoto. Kyoto is the old emperor's capital. And that city is marked by all of these great cultural locations, all of these locations that date back to the history of Japan. And so Nintendo as a company was marked by all of these traditions, a tradition based on stellar uh, manufacturing quality, stellar innovation. That was what I stepped into. And I I was fortunate to have uh, known the industry as a player for many, many years. I knew the franchises. I knew by reputation the executives. That certainly helped me adapt to the culture. But I think in fairness, there was some mutual adaptation going on as well. I Mm -hmm. I was the brash marketer, the person really looking to drive revenue for the company in the Americas, which is the largest revenue base for global Nintendo. And I was fortunate to partner with the global president at the time, a gentleman by the name of Satoru Uwada. I was fortunate to partner with arguably one of the world's greatest game creators in Shigeru Miyamoto. And it was this blending of perspective, this blending of culture, if you will, that not only allowed me to be effective in the company, but for the company to really have some magical sales results behind the Nintendo DS, the Wii, 
and uh, I was there for the early beginnings of the launch of the Nintendo Switch. So I would say it was quite a balance of different cultures as I joined the company. Now, you mentioned brash marketing, which is a great segue to our next question. When you were introduced for the first time as president at E3, you came on stage and said, my name is Reggie, and I'm about kicking ass and taking names. Bold. <laughs> Why did you decide to go that route? You know, so let's be clear. This wasn't a decision that I alone made. This really was an overall corporate decision that at that time in May of 2004, the company needed to put a marker down. The company needed to take on a much more uh, aggressive, a much more progressive posture within the industry. And, you know, I, I I was in the fortunate situation of being able to deliver that commentary, to be able to deliver you know, the vast majority of that year's presentation. But make no mistake, it, it was a broad corporate objective to flip the script. It was a broad corporate objective to really stick a claim on where the company was going, which was to drive significant innovation, both for new products as well as to breathe life into some of its venerable franchises like The Legend of Zelda. So it was a very considered approach, and luckily an approach that worked, not only with our key business constituents, not only with the media, but it resonated with the fans. And what the fans saw was a company that was going to be much more aggressive moving forward. Now in your book, you write about your experiences as a black executive in the games industry. Uh, games development has been extraordinarily underrepresented by black workers for some time. A 2021 poll by the International Game Developers Association stated that only 4% of respondents identified as black. What can the game industry do to confront that disparity? You know, I have to say it's a much bigger issue than just the games industry. If, if you look at the core skills required to be effective in gaming, you know, you get into science, technology, engineering, math, as well as the arts. And, and I would argue that it all starts with our core education, putting much more of a priority on these core skills. Just one little fact, he, I, I live in the state of Washington, here in the state of Washington, there's a projection of some 270,000 jobs that require these types of skills. And our base educational system is not developing the graduates necessary to have a certificate or to have a, a graduate diploma in these skills to fill these jobs. So that's where it starts. Our core education really needs to adapt to the industries and the, the core fundamentals needed to create graduates that have the core skills to be effective. Next, any industry needs to embrace broad, diverse students and graduates to bring them into their companies, to train them, to develop them. Again, this is a core need across so many different industries. Specifically within gaming, what makes it really disappointing is that so many uh, consumers with diverse backgrounds play video games. They love the content, they love the industry. And so the industry needs to be much more welcoming to this broad group of consumers to get them in, to get them trained, and then to have them progress within the organizations.
Right, right. Um, there have been a few reports in the past month that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, there have been complaints from contractors working at Nintendo that claimed that they were mistreated, uh, specifically when it came to taking time off. Uh, one employee at a customer service center said when his grandfather died, quote, I was told if I went to his funeral, I wouldn't have a job when I came back. Now, these complaints come from 2015, the year when you were still president of uh, Nintendo of America. How do you respond to those complaints? You know, look, when I was at Nintendo of America and I led that organization for 13 years as president, you know, I made it a priority to have a culture within the organization that was welcoming, that that really uh, promoted all of the different workers that we had, whether they were full-time workers or whether they were associates or contractors, as the story states. And so these reports are, are really troubling. I, I did not have a situation as the leader of the company where we had a broad issue with our associate base. It, it just wasn't there. What I would say today is that every organization looks needs to look hard at their employment practices, especially in this time of COVID, and make sure that they are being progressive, that they are being welcoming to all of their employees, whether they're full-time or not, and to make sure that they've got the policies and principles in place to have a welcoming, uh, a, a welcoming work environment. That's what I would focus on. And to make sure that there are no systemic issues going on versus you know situations that may be uh, a one-off. Obviously, these, these companies are, are massive, Nintendo among them. What exactly is the responsibility of a chief executive or a president in ensuring worker happiness at, at all levels? I mean, you can't be aware of every issue, but how can you stay in touch to ensure worker satisfaction? Well, you're, you're right that you can't be uh, directly involved in every single issue. But I will say this. I, I do believe it is the role of company leadership to set a culture in the organization and to set the tone. And that tone starts with uh, having uh, uh, openness and having every employee in the organization that can come to you to, that can raise an issue. That's certainly the culture that I advocated while I was there at Nintendo. You need to reinforce with every step of management that taking care of our employees is job one. You know, I, I would frame it this way right? There's only so much I can do as president of the company. But I, if I have the right mentality, the right culture throughout the organization, then the entire organization can do much more than what I can do individually. And that needs to be the mentality. You need to set the tone. You need to make sure that the right rewards and recognition are in place for positive workplace behaviors and culture. And then when issues do come up, you, you need to be aggressive in dealing with them. You can't ignore them. You can't push them under the rug. You have to deal with them and deal with them swiftly. So that's how I would frame for leaders today how they need to be thinking about their culture and making sure that, yes, you know, every worker is as satisfied as possible within the organization. So along similar lines, um, later today, Raven Software will be announcing the results of its vote to unionize its quality assurance department. Now, there's been an increased push for unionization throughout the video game industry over the past several years. Why do you think that is? You know, I, I have to say it's more than just the video game industry, right? There's been a much broader push for unionization across a range of different industries. 
And you know, from my perspective, I do believe that companies need to look hard at their practices and, and make sure that they are creating you know, a worker-friendly environment. And unfortunately, so many of these organizations that are in the news you know, are there because there are issues that are coming up. And again, not one or two issues, but systemic issues that are running rampant in organizations. So that's certainly giving rise to a mentality of more unionization. I also think that uh, the last two and a half years with COVID have created some really challenging situations across so many industries, whether it's the hospitality industry, whether it's the video game industry, it's been a lot tougher to do work and to do good work in these types of situations. So that's also giving rise to this push for unionization. You know, the last piece I would highlight is, you know, in in many industries, unionization is a good thing, right? And as a leader, you need to look hard. And if this is what your employees want, you need to address that and embrace it and move forward. I've worked in industries that have had high levels of unionization. And it's this is not a good or bad thing. It is a situation that as a leader, as an executive, you need to manage just like any other challenge or issue or opportunity that you face. Now, as you sit on the on the outside now looking in, do you think this is a trend that would continue into the future, both inside the games industry and beyond? You know, I, I think specifically within the gaming industry, there are just a range of different factors uh, that you need to look at. You know, you have certain organizations that are much more development uh, in nature. So these are the teams that are actually creating the work. Um, I, I do think those portions of a company are a bit more uh, challenging to unionize in that the work is so different. It is it is mental work. It is not um, it is not, you know, traditional labor, uh, if you think about it in those terms. So I, I, I think those types of situations are more unique. Quality assurance, which is much more regimate, uh, regimented, uh, much more you know, when you're, you're timed by a clock, those types of situations can lead themselves to more unionization. Every situation is different. And again, I think that any leader needs to look at their organization, look at the work being done, and to make sure that the work is being done the best way possible and that the workers are in the best position to do their best work. One other recent video game industry trend has been consolidation. In January of 2022, Microsoft announced its plans to acquire Activision Blizzard. Previously, it had acquired Zenmax Media, the parent company of Bethesda Softworks. In that same month, Sony announced plans to acquire Bungie, and there have been a number of voices that say, this is going to be a trend that continues in the video game industry. What are your thoughts on that subject? So I, I think in the situations you highlight, the, the acquisition or merger has been strategic in nature. So mm -hmm. for example, uh, you know, Take-Two and Zenga, uh, a, mm -hmm. uh, a merger that is closing today, I believe. You know, this is a situation where Take-Two has all of these fabulous franchises but they don't have the skills and knowledge in the mobile space, which is what Zenga is bringing to bear. So that's a very smart, very strategic uh, merger. Uh, another situation is uh, Microsoft and Activision, as you mentioned, and that's one where 
if you look at the value of Activision, the value of that company had come down so dramatically as a result of some of these workplace issues that from a pure economic standpoint, it made a lot of sense for Microsoft to, to pursue that acquisition. And so e each of these is quite strategic. Each of these is quite unique. Do I believe as a result of these acquisitions, there will actually be more game development companies? I do. And I say this because as a result of these mergers and acquisitions, there will be senior level talent who will not be satisfied being part of this larger organization. And they will want to pursue the creation of their own content, their creation of their own intellectual property. And so I believe this is going to give rise to quite a number of uh, what's called in the industry double A or, or large independent mm. developers that are gonna make great content. And so I, I do believe as a result of all of this M&A activity, there's going to be significant opportunity for new development teams to create really unique and compelling content, which hopefully is going to continue to drive this $200 billion industry. So that's interesting, because I mean, I think one take would be that the big companies keep swallowing up all the small fish. But now I think there's a perspective here that you're voicing saying there will be more startups, more studios that will spring up to fill the void. Is that correct? That's correct. And I really do believe that. You know, and, and I say this because as these larger M&A activities happen, the focus are, is going to be on the large established intellectual property. You know, developers fundamentally are creators. They want to create new IP. They want to create new ideas. They want to pursue no, new visions. And so that's why I do believe that all of this M&A activity can result in a significant number of new development studios which will create new content and uh, new experiences for consumers. Now, over the past several years, particularly with the uh, pandemic, the video game industry has risen to new levels of prominence, both in terms of cultural importance and financially. What do you think is the biggest threat to that continued success for the industry? You know, look, I, I think the biggest threat is uh, if the industry sits back on, it, on its laurels, and stops being the innovative force that it's been. You know, and I say this as an executive who spent, you know, over 15 years in the industry. This industry historically has uh, seen a great idea happen in the marketplace and then everyone yeah. wants to create exactly that same type of content. You know, I, I call it a lemmings mentality that once there's this great new idea, everyone wants to try and create their own little modest variation on that idea. I, I believe, and certainly this was the mentality at Nintendo, you have to pursue new innovative ideas that break the mold, that bring new consumers into the industry, that provide new forms of gameplay, that create new forms of intellectual property. This is what drives the industry forward. If you look at some of the best-selling video game systems of all time, fundamentally, they had a unique proposition, right? The Wii with motion control, the Nintendo DS with two screens and a focus on bringing both younger consumers and older consumers into the industry. And now with the Nintendo Switch, a system that you could play on your big screen TV and then undock it and play it in, on the go. These are all fundamental innovations that have propelled the industry. And so that's that's my, on one hand, hope, on the other hand, concern, 
is that the industry does not get stagnant and does not just focus on the same old idea. There needs to be continued innovation for it to continue to grow. Uh, on the consumer side of things, one of the, the bigger complaints that has come up repeatedly, both from gamers or from parents of gamers, uh, revolves around harassment over live voice chat, uh, which is a, a platform that's really hard to sort of regulate because everything's happening in real time. Is there anything companies can do to help mitigate that threat? You know, I, I do think there's a lot companies can do. And, you know, in fact, the larger players within the industry, so Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo, you know, they have regular conversations on how to address this very issue. You know, all of these systems have parental controls. All of these systems have the ability as a parent or as a user to regulate the type of experience that you have in an online connected experience. And the industry is taking very aggressive steps to try and not only give consumers and parents more tools, but also should there be uh, individuals with repeated bad behavior, then these uh, individuals are taken off of the platform. And, and these, you know, the platform holders are quite clear in their policies and, and taking this type of action. So much is being done, certainly much more can and should be done to, to minimize this type of harassment that is happening on these online experiences. So now I just have to know, have you ever been trolled in a multiplayer lobby? You know, so uh, interestingly, I, I have not. Uh, and I, I'll Ooh. share that for a couple of reasons. One, my favorite types of games are not multiplayer games. I, I tend to love single player, methodical types of experiences where I can take my time, where I can be overpowered and in going into a particular engagement, that is much more my style. And then the other thing is if I am playing in a multiplayer experience, I'll play with friends, I'll play with people that I know. I tend not to play a lot of multiplayer experiences with people I don't know. And it's for that very reason, right? I, I don't want to be harassed or trolled in that type of environment. Along those lines, what should player, parents and older generations really know about modern video games as a medium? Look, as a medium, this is a content that is progressing very rapidly. You know, the, the narrative-driven games uh, are much more prevalent in the industry today. Uh, games are making the player think uh, a little bit more Games are delivering key messages and, and touching with, you know, challenging topics, uh, you know, mental health topics, climate change topics, things of that nature. So the first thing that uh, parents, older consumers should be aware of is that, you know, thematically, you know, video games are moving, uh, you know, much more forward and, you know, quite similar to, you know, the, the pure movie or, or video-based entertainment. There's a wide variety of different content and, and they're addressing a wide variety of themes. The other piece I would highlight, as I said before, is that the machines themselves, the latest Xbox, the latest Nintendo uh, Switch, the latest Sony PlayStation have parental controls that you should be very familiar with. And you should set them up in a way that enables you to have a great game playing experience. And then the last thing I would highlight is that, you know, video games today are the dominant form of entertainment. 
much larger than movies and other video content, much larger than music. And you know there are experiences for you, no matter your taste, no matter what it is that you're trying to do in, uh, in your own uh, personal entertainment space, there are video games that you can find that will, will speak to your own passions and your own areas of interest. So we have a question from our audience here. Uh, Jorge Baez Trevino from Tennessee asks, what is one thing someone jumping into the industry should expect and should avoid doing? You know, so the, the first thing I would say in terms of what to expect, this is an incredibly fast paced industry. That's what drew me into it. I love the pace of the industry. I love the constant innovation. And so you ought to expect a high level of pace. You know, things are constantly changing, which means that your perspective needs to be very broad. You need to be thinking about all different types of trends, not only within the industry, but also external to the industry in order to be able to do your best work. You know, in terms of what not to do, you know, people have this perception that if you work in the video game industry, all you do is play video games. And you know, that, that, that couldn't be anything further from the truth. You know, this is an industry that's based on creativity. This is an industry that's based on uh, hardcore technology. This is an industry that's based on data and consumer insight and sales and marketing skills. You know, this is an industry where you will apply your background and your skills uh, into the job at hand. Uh, don't expect to come into the job expecting that all you're going to do is play video games. Sad, but true. Uh, this does uh, lead to a follow-up question, though, because one of the things I've uh, throughout my career, learn from, from my mistakes. And I know you have a reputation among gamers uh, that's extremely popular. You're basically sainted by a number of gamers. So I just gotta know, have you ever screwed up? Was there anything you did at Nintendo that in hindsight you're like, mm, I wish I had that one back? I mean, look, look, any leader, anyone who is agitating for change, anyone who's being a disruptor in challenging the status quo you always make mistakes, all right? That, that is a fact. The key is that you need to fail forward. The, the key is that you need to learn from the experience and apply what you've learned to that next situation, right? And, and you know, I, I'll, I'll address this from a bigger con context, but recall the Nintendo Wii, you know, 100 million consoles sold globally, almost a billion pieces of software sold globally. The next system that Nintendo launched was the Wii U. Uh, regrettably, the second worst performance of a Nintendo platform in the company's history. The company needed to learn from that experience and the company did and was able to launch now the massively successful Nintendo Switch. You know, and the Switch now is the best-selling console that Nintendo has ever had. So. Everyone makes mistakes. The key is how do you learn from them? How do you fail forward and move on into the future? So just for our last question, I know you're retired from Nintendo. Uh, you were briefly part of the GameStop board, but you've you stepped down from that. So what are you up to now? Tell us about your future. Sure. Well, so in addition to the book that was just published, uh, Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the Top of Nintendo, I continue to be active in board service. I serve on three public boards, 
including one that's a special purpose acquisition company. So I'm still engaged in the video game industry now as a uh, investor and a potential acquirer of a private company in the in the goal to take them public. You know, I continue to do significant uh, advisory work and consulting work. And so for me, it's the perfect type of retirement. I get to do all the things that I enjoy and I get to do them with people that I enjoy working with. Reggie, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Reggie fils thanks for joining us on Washington Post Live. Mike, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.